Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thank you so much for making it out here on your lunch hour uh, here at the Commonwealth Club. We do a taping of the program here every Thursday, but today it's a special treat. We want to give thanks to our major sponsor, Pacific Fertility Center, who makes programs like the Michelle Miao Show available. And also thank you to Ceremony Ford and the Castro car guy uh, for providing <laughs> lunch for us today. I mean, Ike sandwiches just can't beat that. Yeah. <laughs> and now for our special guest today. I'm Michelle Miao. My co-host is John Zipper. Our special guest is the regional president for AT&T. He's in charge of public policy, philanthropy, uh, heads and leads 45,000 plus employees and overall amazing guys. Some of you have already reached out to me, excited to hear him speak. Let's give a warm welcome to Ken McNeely. Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Okay, so it's tradition here in the program that you share a coming out story, and I, I really have to hear it from your own words in terms of what you will share, but also <laughs> to address the fact that you you know, served as a cheerleader for a few years for the North Carolina Tar Heels and shared the same court as Michael Jordan when he made the winning shot in 1982 for to clinch the NCAA title. So don't forget that in your coming out story. <laughs> I think I think you just told my coming out story. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Oh, my coming out story. Uh, you know, really, it's it it. Um, you know, I grew up in in North Carolina, so it was uh, it was kind of a a gradual coming out story, I guess. Um, I was certainly out to 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 friends um, in college uh, for a long time, but it wasn't really until um, I'd graduated from college that I actually came out to my to my uh, to my parents, and it was one of those interesting things. So I was a little bit older; I was about to uh, to about to start law school. And um, and I um, had um, <clears throat> unfortunately lost one of my uh, dear friends to uh, to HIV/AIDS, and and I just felt like it was it was an opportunity for me to have a, a discussion with my with my mom, and I did have that discussion. And I remember we had gone out; she had come to visit me. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and um, she had come to visit, and uh, we had had this wonderful, incredible weekend, and it was over breakfast, and I was pouring coffee, and I was saying, you know, I just don't, I don't think we have these kinds of discussions anymore. You know, we're, we've been so candid, and it's been great to spend some time with you and one-on-one. And she said, what do you mean? We talk almost every day. And I said, well, you know, you mean, you know, the real discussions where, you know, we really kind of share things. And she said, well, what, like what? What do you mean? I said, well, you know, as I'm pouring coffee, I said, you know, like the fact that I'm gay. Oh. You know, and then I thought at that point she, you know, certainly choking her coffee, but you know, <laughs> she, uh, she, she paused and uh, she took a sip, and uh, in a very dramatic fashion, she said, um, "Well, it's because I've always known." Mm. And I said, "Well, really?" And she said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, how long have you known?" And she said, "Probably since you were ten." And that little uh, Deborah thing—I knew that was a passing <laughs> thing, a passing fling. <laughs> and uh, I said, "Well, I guess you do know me very well." And then she kind of um, rattled off uh, uh, the guys that I dated that I thought she thought were just friends. <laughs> and uh, and we, you know, it's been a wonderful, uh, embracing and endearing experience since. So. It's awesome. It's kind of the positive experience you'd hope people would have. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't have asked for a better response, but uh, my mom's an incredible person. Yeah. Have there been any negative uh, hurdles because of your sexuality? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, I started my career, um, you know, I went to, I went to law school and, and did well and I clerked for the Supreme Court of North Carolina and decided to go back to North Carolina at the urging of the justice uh, that I'd worked for, because at that point, this was maybe in the late 80s, mm. there were no African-Americans in any of the large firms. I mean, you know, so I, I didn't even kind of deal with the LGBT issue. I mean, just going back as an African-American attorney in a very large firm was a big thing. And so I, I did that. And... Um, um, and I was I was one of the I was the first, and um, uh, the the firm had a written policy that that um, gay lawyers could not become partners. 
Well, uh, and they actually uh, had a policy. They had a written policy. I mean, as we all know, there are no federal protections, and only wow. only state law protects uh, for LGBT uh, discrimination in employment. So they had every you know, and, and, until this day. And I mean, North Carolina does not have uh, protections for LGBT, LGBT employees. Uh, so they had that policy. You could be an associate, but you could not become a partner in the company. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm both African-American and LGBT. My life is limited. I mean, my career is limited here. And so after a couple of years, I started to, uh, to look, for, um, uh, look for other employment. And I thought that uh, corporate America would be a little bit more uh, forgiving and understanding and embracing. Actually, not just forgiving, but celebrating. And, um, and I was recruited by, uh, by AT&T. Interestingly enough... Um, um, uh, interestingly enough, I was uh, accepted the position uh, at, with AT&T in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was put in charge of all the legal work in North Carolina. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so as a result of that, I got to you know, select outside counsel and work with the lawyers uh, representing, uh, uh, representing AT&T. Uh, and AT&T has always had a very strong non-discrimination policy, yeah. and we require that of all of our uh, suppliers, our contractors, uh, outside counsel. And so with, uh, with great relish, I interviewed my old law firm and asked them about, well, how many African-American lawyers do you have? How many, <laughs> wow. how many of them are partners? How many LGBT lawyers? do you have? How many of them are partners? And, uh, and complete silence. And I thought, I said, you know, you guys do great work, but you're not a, you're not a good fit for AT&T. Wow. And, uh, and so it's really, you know, it's, 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 uh, it was great um, opportunity to, uh, for them to, uh, to have that learning experience. They have since changed their policies. And, um, you know, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a, a very quick example of what it means to have LGBT representation in decision-making decision roles uh, and, and how that can impact change. I like the, the questions you're asking, which is actual, how many do you have working in various categories? Because if you're just looking at what's your policy, yep. yeah, you can always change a policy and just, we just can't find any African-Americans to hire. So you're, you're actually... Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I want to get into, you know, AT&T's contribution to the LGBTQ community <coughs> and the work that you've done in the last few years that you've been there. But before we do that, I mean, there's so many LGBTQ organizations here in the Bay Area. Um, I, I was just wondering if you had any plans to be a part of Cheer SF since you, I'm going back to the whole Cheer <laughs> oh, you're thing. Oh, you're going to let go of the Cheer thing. <laughs> And maybe that you would probably do a, a cheer or two. No, no, oh, wow. No, you know, you know, when 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 I first uh, when I first got transferred to to um, to San Francisco, and I have to say that um, I, I was transferred here in 2000, and it was like coming to Oz. I mean, it was like this. It, it was this dream that I had of this place, shiny place on the hill. Uh, and if you grew up in the South, that's the way you think about San Francisco. You read a lot about it. You know that oh my God, this is like the, you know everyone embraces embraces everyone. And, uh, and when I actually got here, I think um, I, I moved to Noe Valley, and I I got to see. Cheer uh, 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 San Francisco, Cheer SF, and it was like the embodiment of all of that tolerance and exuberant, exuberant uh, feeling for the for the area, all wrapped into one, and 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 a wrapping that I could identify with, having you know having been a cheerleader. But yeah, I was I was that. Um, uh, back at Carolina, doing the days of Michael uh, Jordan, I, he and I were friends because we all we all hung out together and traveled together. And and it was, I, it was I have a great to time. interrupt. Did he know you were gay? Uh, yes, 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 he did. And he was... No, absolutely fine with it. Um, and it was, uh, you know, college campuses, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, it was a very tolerant place, mm -hmm. uh, an oasis, really, in, 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 in North Carolina at that time. Um, no, I found, I found it to be, Chapel Hill, to be a very tolerant place, okay. and the people there. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the Michael Jordan thing was cool, but I thought it was even more cool that you were a cheerleader, and here you are, you're the regional president of AT&T. Um, but, you know, what's important about your role, many of us in the LGBTQ community know how, how, we know how important it is for many of us. You could be a grassroots activist to, you know, a, a CEO. We need all of us to really start uh, implementing and executing programs that sustain our community. AT&T has one of the longest and maybe probably was one of the first companies to establish an ERG group. I think it was established back in 
1985 or 1987, somewhere around there, in the 80s, um, which, is, which is very impressive. You got to AT&T, and it had already been established for a few years. What was, you know, the experience like? It sounds like you got there and you already were out and thriving, and they really embraced you as, you know, a gay man. No, I, I, think abs- I think one of the things that it certainly attracted me to AT&T was the fact that it was and had, had a, um, uh, a reputation of being a very embracing place. <clears throat> and what really struck me was um, uh, really an opportunity to be, to be my authentic self because I knew that if I, could, if, I, if I didn't have to worry about being somebody that I'm not, I could really be an incredible contributor to the organization, but it, but it but it, even in that environment in the mid to late '80s, it was still a journey for me. I mean, my uh, my when I started with the company in Atlanta, Georgia, as a as a uh, mid level lawyer, uh, I mean, I was out to a few people, but but not. Not, not, you know, not really. I mean, I, I, I still, you know, your personal life was your personal life. Um, and it really wasn't until, um, you know, I started to move up in the company. And I think that uh, I had a track record. And, um, uh, and really coming out to California. And then it, I could really kind of embrace myself. And I think that, and I, and I could, I, I could actually see myself reflected in the community uh, in, in, in leadership uh, uh, as well. And I think that that empowered and emboldened me and gave me the courage of number of the numbers uh, to, to really live authentically. And I think that that really, um, uh, you know, started to change. But I think that um, really the most, um, um, I guess, outing event uh, at all was uh, my, my starting a family. Uh, mm-hmm. Because when you and your husband adopt two children, uh, you know nothing says I'm out and proud than than you know having a, a, your your toddler scream "Daddy" and "Papa" in a crowd, you know, and and so. Um, um, you know, that, and that also gave me a kind of a common language with everybody. I mean, we were all kind of struggling to raise our kids. And, and, and so if others felt uncomfortable about asking me, you know, what I was doing over the weekend as a single person, they certainly wasn't hesitant to ask me, how's that school application process going? Because we're all going through the same thing. So it gave me this common language mm-hmm. that everyone had. But I think that, um, um, over time I became more confident and, um, um, and I think able to kind of drive my own agenda in a, in, a, in a sense. Let's talk about initiatives at the workplace. I mean, you know, recent headlines, sadly, tragically, uh, suicide bullying is still something that impacts the LGBTQ community. A nine-year-old from Denver had just committed suicide after coming out and being bullied. Um, AT&T has just pledged a million dollars to the Trevor Project and is donating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's Trevor Project being an organization that's suicide prevention and anti-bullying. So if you could talk about that, you know, the specific initiatives over at AT&T, the LGBTQ initiatives that you're leading and why it's important to you. Sure. That's, it's interesting. You know, um, you know when, I, when I first um, uh, got my position as, as president, I remember um, a senior officer at the company once saying, you know, asking me, um, you know, once I'd started some LGBT initiatives, he asked, um, do you want to be known as the gay president? You know, what, you know, why are you doing so much in this particular community? He says, do you want to be known as the gay president? And I, and I was like, but I am, you know? I mean, nobody would ask me, do you want to be known as the black president? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is who I am, and our life experiences inform us in whatever we do. And you may not identify, you may not claim it, but it, you know, if you're a straight white male, your life experiences um, inform your decision making. They inform how you engage the community, um, and so my own experiences inform mine as well. I now happen to have uh, resources to be able to help make decisions and, inf- and more importantly, inform decisions in ways that may not have happened in the, in the past. And so I think that one, our life experiences always inform our decision-making. And so my life experience, as I've shared with you, is what it is. And so I understand, so having, having the ability and the authority and the responsibility to kind of make decisions on how we engage the community, my job is to really understand and have my finger on the pulse of our community 
to really reflect those values in the community? And how can you not do that in the Bay Area without having a significant impact in the LGBT community? Having experienced and being part of that community myself, then I know, I know firsthand how um, um, though that commu- the, the, community, the community can benefit from that. So, um, you know, we had uh, pledged $100 million uh, in the company uh, some years ago through a, um, a program um, uh, where we were really trying to address um, high school dropout. And we realized that, that um, government was not going to be able to do this on its own. We really needed, we really needed to look at public-private public partnerships. So we wanted to make a difference. And so we wanted to really focus AT&T's philanthropy on high school uh, achievement, uh, particularly in underserved communities and communities of color. And so we started to focus on that. And then I, I knew firsthand and, and anecdotally that, that for LGBT youth, one of the biggest challenges was bullying in, in school. And the ability to really be able to attain that degree and then move on to high school was a large part involved in, in, in bullying. So I was able to then pivot from, from high school achievement to really anti-bullying campaigns to kind of pull in the LGBTQ community as well. And, um, and, and how can you look at bullying um, and its impact on our LGBTQ youth and not look at uh, the, Trevor, the Trevor Project? And so I became involved with Trevor, really understood and really, um, uh, it really spoke to me. Um, you know, particularly when you look at some of those, uh, for those of you that may not be familiar with Trevor, it's really, it started as a suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth. And many of those calls come from places that I recognize mm-hmm. in North Carolina, in the South, and in, in, in particularly the South, uh, most of their most of their calls come from come from that area, and so I really got involved with them, and then I realized that you know this you know calling centers for youth that's become kind of. Um, Old-fashioned now, People, no, no one makes phone calls anymore. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so being an LGBT executive at a what was once a phone company, which is now a mobile <laughs> entertainment company, I wanted to help them tr- make that transition. So I really felt it was really important to give kids another form of communicating their despair, another form of communicating crisis through texting. Hmm. So we really wanted to help them launch Trevor Text. Wow. Because it gave them an opportunity to communicate without having to talk to their parents or people or saying who are you on the phone with. Mm-hmm. They could text a hotline and get the kind of response and support that they needed. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I also, I think some of you in this room know have tried to call me. I don't like to talk on the phone, too. And, um, <laughs> but, but, John, I'm hogging Ken. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, as you're talking about the, the philanthropic uh, focuses that you have, how much of this, I mean, do you have a team that helps you come up with, you know, the funding and, and dealing with these groups, or how much of, at what point are you the decider, as George Bush would have said? Well, you know, you know ultimately, but I really try to empower my team, because, you know, we have, we have um, I have community affairs managers uh, throughout the, the West, um, embedded in the community throughout, and their job is really to understand the community. What's important to Bakersfield is different than what's important in, um, in Oakland, which is different from what's important in, say, Campbell or um, uh, Eureka. And so uh, we really try to understand understand the needs of the community. Um, uh, those uh, managers have uh, their own budgets, uh, which are, you know, I distribute at the beginning of each year. And so they have responsibility for identifying those, those sources. And it must be really satisfying to be at a place where you're talking about, when you said 100 million at first, I thought, I'll bet he misspoke. 100 million? 100 million. I mean, you guys can really make differences. I mean, it, so many foundations and companies and individuals who are very generous and, and, and do make gifts can only dream about being able to have that kind of an impact. Um, do you ever do you ever wish you could do more? Are there different things you would like to be able to take on in addition if you had even well grander? <laughs> well, there, there, there's always. I mean, there, there's always. You know, it's. I, I, I appreciate the the, the compliment, uh, but as much as we invest, there's always more to do. Yeah. Yep. And and. Um, yes, you can solve some issues with dollars, but I think how we how we carry ourselves in the community, how we engage the community, and how we leverage 
we leverage ourselves can help make a difference uh, as well. Um, you know, earlier we were talking about our recent um, acquisition of Time Warner, yeah. which gives us now Warner Media, which includes HBO and um, HBO and uh, Turner, CNN, and Warner Brothers Studios. Uh, and that this is part of our our journey uh, uh, to create content um, and and um, uh, distribution together, mobile mobile entertainment. Um, but one of the things we just announced today is that is that we're going to create a, a diversity compact. We believe that that um, that um, we want to see greater diversity in Hollywood. We want to see d greater diversity in film. We want to see diversity in front of and behind the camera. So a lot of the workforce development that we're doing now are in communities of color and underserved communities where we're getting these one stories told and we're getting training for people to create their own content. Because when you think about mobile content, uh, we're not only producing um, content for the big screen now, and which has traditionally had a very um, 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 high degree of, of risk, and so a very um, 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 re very reluctant to really take chances. Mm -hmm. But if you think in terms of the the future being around mobile entertainment, where you can create a thirty minute um, uh, episode that you could subscribe to on your mobile phone, the opportunity to create more diverse content and take a risk for a certain community and focus it to that particular community is greater. So that creates greater diversity in front of and behind the camera. We, we were also talking before this program. And, and when you're talking about contributions, the leverage there is that my, my guess is that other studios will follow. We were also talking earlier about the, the fact that AT&T is not known as an entertainment company. You know, the former Ma Bell taking over a movie studio. Is there a culture shift? And what do you guys bring to Hollywood, for example, I guess, that uh, maybe Hollywood needs? Ken's <laughs> cheer. <laughs> My cheer. Well, I think one of the things that, that, that they bring is that I no longer have to wear a white shirt and a blue suit anymore. <laughs> uh, so I can actually dress more comfortably. But, I, but I, you know, I think when we started talk, thinking about content and about uh, engaging Hollywood, when it, we, we thought that we really needed to evolve and that culture would overtake, uh, and rightfully so, uh, the kind of what was Ma Bell. Uh, but of course, then we all know things started to happen in Hollywood that weren't necessarily um, a great reflection on the people uh, and, and, and the organizations there. And it really caused us to reflect a little bit and, and to think about, you know, we are a 140-year-old company. Oftentimes, I refer to it as a 140-year-old startup. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to reinvent ourselves. So we must be doing something right we, we have a culture of giving. We have a culture of tolerance, of cult, a culture of giving back. And I thought, what a, what a great way, uh, what a great marriage of the creative kind of free-for-all with kind of a disciplined, connected, and empathetic parent, you know, and, and the coming together of those two entities. So I do think that we, we, we have, we can, uh, there's a great intersection. I think it is unleashing a creativity in us that we have not seen before, but it, it is also providing some discipline an understanding and sensitivity to each other and the communities in which we work and live. Do you get to see every time we're in a movie for free now? I'm working on that. I'm working <laughs> on that. Well, it's a great segue then to, uh, I have a, a lot of questions. Um, All right. A lot of questions about the merge of Time Warner and AT&T. I mean, it, right when, you know, the merge was happening, it was also, there was a lot of things happening uh, government-wise or policy-wide, one being that neutrality and, and uh, you know, consumers are concerned about uh, how net neutrality or uh, without it, the withdrawal of it, and the FCC's decision to get rid of that will impact their consumption of media and internet and access to, you know, data and just being able to communicate um, or to access to independent content providers, um, as, as you had mentioned. So it's refreshing to hear you individually in, as a, a leader in a big company like AT&T, because I think your personal experiences will really shape what AT&T and the Time Warner Merge can actually do in the future. But just to, to really, you know, ask you the question of um, 
kind of what your your views or your thoughts are and, and maybe help the general consumers like myself and those sitting out here and our fears that we won't be able to have access if we don't have the money to do it, it individually, if you right. get what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's that's a great question, Michelle, and thank you for asking it. You know, I do think that the the uh, proponents of net neutrality have um, have overstated uh, or misstated rather uh, the position of. You know, I can only speak as a distributor for, as as AT and T. Um, what those claims are, um, AT and T had had made uh, net neutrality commitments uh, to the federal government years ago. Um, and, um, and we continue to, to keep those commitments, notwithstanding des- the decisions of the FCC and what the FCC has done under this new administration. Uh, one of the challenges that we face, though, and one of the contentions that we've made known in California has been um, um, an attempt to create different rules state by state. Because when you're a global company and you're trying to distribute content worldwide, to have different rules in one state uh, versus all the other states uh, is unworkable. And so our preference is for a federal solution, Hmm. that it really is uh, for Congress to make that decision and for Congress to, we hope, uh, to to create uh, or to write into law the commitments that we've all made. Uh, if there's any concerns about backsliding, um, rewrite those commitments into law at a national level and have them apply to everybody. So vote come November. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's very timely because California is in, in considering legislation. And you do kind of then wonder, well, okay, what is Nevada going to do? What is Texas going to do? Illinois? Um, it seems for businesses you have that challenge, and then you also just have the challenge of, say, there is a federal approach. Having it change every time Congress flips is, you know, it's like if you know it's going to be one way, even if it's not your preferred way, at least you can plan on that. Right. But if you, you kind of have to be prepared to always have whatever you create to work with whatever system upended in every time um, you know, a political hot potato gets tossed around. Exactly. I mean, it makes it very challenging to plan. And the other thing is that is that, uh, and the other reason you know we you know, a level playing field is is required because with new technologies, you know what was what was a phone company or a phone call even has changed over the last five years. And so uh, the the kinds of companies that compete with us now didn't even exist, you know, 10 years ago. And, and so when you want to create rules, you want to create rules broad enough to encompass everybody so that the entire ecosystem's playing by the same rules. Do you think that this is the beginning of uh, the end for, for television? I mean, you know, the good old plug into the wall, turn the dial, and something comes up. I'm, uh, I'm speaking for no, you know, people uh, like me who... I have a t- so, yeah. I have a 12 and 13 year old, and I don't think they've ever seen a television with a dial on it. And I and and, and it would probably scare them. They wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, our home phone rang one day, and I think it scared my kids. And they asked me if I could if I could change that ring tone. Ring tone. Um, you know, uh, we 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 are way beyond that. I mean, I think you know we live in a world now where you answer your television and watch your phone. And um, I mean, this is our this is our future. Um, well, it's not our future. This is our present. This is our present, and um, we, you know, the day has come now where you consume far more, maybe not you personally, but consumers consume much more content in front of a screen while walking, running, hopefully not driving. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, then sitting on, a, on, on your, um, uh, your, um, your couch, mm. you know, and um, it, it is the way we live. Um, and it is uh, f- particularly for younger people, um, their only way of consuming uh, content. Speaking of technology and new technology and high tech and, and, and Hollywood, one of Hollywood's big changes as the Internet kind of metastasized all over the place was uh, prior, excuse me, piracy and, and theft of stuff. Does AT&T's tech resources and know-how and planning offer any sort of hope for all the creators of being able to 
be more in charge of distribution and, and monetization? Well, so. you know, I think that's a great question. And I think that's really one of the upsides for the content makers. You know, I think one of the, when, um, when, when we started uh, working with the DirecTV and looking at content itself, I think one of the exciting parts uh, uh, from that deal was the support that we were got starting to get from content creators mm -hmm. because they were now thinking that while wow, we now we have some we have some control over over the content that we're creating because I mean the biggest challenge for uh, you know the the stars get their money up front but if you're working behind the camera you get your money based on on dollars coming in, people watching and rewatching uh, the content that they've created, and um, uh, these skilled laborers who work so tirelessly to create the content that we enjoy don't get paid if it's if it's pirated, and um, and they've been very very supportive of 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 of. of I think where they see uh, this going mm -hmm. and being able to really have a better control over their creative process. We're going to open it up to the floor for questions um, in just a little bit. So start thinking about what questions you'd like to ask Ken. And uh, John's going to walk around with the amazing mic. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I want to make this come full circle. It's very, very, very exciting to hear you and your enthusiasm and talking about, you know, technology, media, uh, and also with a philanthropic mind. Uh, even if L the LGBTQ community has come as far as we have you know, with marriage equality, as you had said, there's so much work that needs to be done. I mean, I read you're the guy who met your husband uh, when you, I think, had a Yahoo email account, and not to put age on it, but um, <laughs> I'm saying that connection being able to socialize, being able to text for emergencies, um, that's still so vital to the LGBTQ community. What, what, what do you see is the, the, the work, not just anti-bullying and, and, and suicide, but to ensure that the connectivity, that, that it's still there for our most marginalized and vulnerable of our population? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing, it's interesting that when we talk about that, because we, we talk in terms of, of 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 the journey, uh, and when I when I when I mentioned you know AT and T being a 140 year old startup, we think in terms of of um, of the home phone and Mom Bell and and the fact that my kids have you know it scares them with the home phone rings. Um, you know, th there's been there 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 is this um, transition going on. We do have an obligation not to leave anyone behind, and in this and in, in this journey, this technological journey. I mean, we've had we've had universal service for phone connectivity uh, for generations. Um, you know, when I when I started with um, uh, as president, um, um, uh, right at about 2001. You know, we had about 12 million home phone lines, uh, traditional home phone lines in California. Now we have almost less than a million traditional home phone lines in all of California. Now, many of you have home phones, but they're not using traditional home phone technologies any anymore. They, they may be fiber, voice over IP. Um, and then depending on your age bracket, you may, not, you, may have, you may have never had any type of home connectivity. Um, uh, and don't want it, and see it as, see it as an expense that you don't you don't need. Uh, it was accelerated in 2008 at uh, during the financial crisis as people made financial decisions about what they wanted. Almost universally, people if they were if they had to make a financial decision about phone about what kind of communications device they chose a wireless phone over a, a connected phone at home. Uh, so we are seeing that. But but we do. We also know is that not everybody um, can make that is making that transition. Though we have seen wireless devices being probably a more democratic um, um, uh, adoption of technology than we've ever seen. Uh, it, it really, without regard to social economic, because there's so many options available: prepaid, postpaid, um, um, 
uh, cards and all. And now um, we've been working to uh, be able to apply the Lifeline subsidy, which is the low-income uh, supplement, to make it technology neutral so that you can apply that supplement uh, to any type of service that you have. And those are the kinds of things that, that we see uh, in, uh, allowing for connectivity uh, throughout the state without regard to income. It's interesting talking about wireless and, and that being an enabler. Um, I remember reading about you know other countries, especially even third world countries, where wireless just took off because they didn't have the set it infrastructure didn't. in there, and so in many ways they were you know technology was developing and getting uh, spread much faster there than here, where we had to make that decision of hmm, do I go with this or this? Should I finally cut that line? It's like, well, this was the first thing they got. Yeah, absolutely. Leapfrog like technology, did, where, yeah, yeah. where you know, if you didn't have universal connectivity, there, you, you didn't didn't have to have make those options about, you know, it's much easier than to put the, you know, the, the cell tower up. Yeah. Questions? You'd like to go first? I should just try throwing the mic, but probably wouldn't work. Here you go, sir. Hi, I must commend you on uh, having texting available to the LGBT youth. But my question is, how do you reach the young people who are on the small towns that don't know where to call or now where to text to get this information? That's, uh, that, well, that's one of the, the things that the kinds of resources that we're trying to give to Trevor, I think, can be very helpful in that, where they're actually, go, they're actually trying to partner with community-based organizations in those areas so that the word can get out about um, um, uh, these opportunities. And we're also, we're also partnering with, we had the um, uh, Love Loud Festival in, uh, of all places, Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, where we filled an entire stadium, and I think one of my um, one of my mentors uh, and a person I admire quite um, uh, uh, quite dearly is Tim Cook at Apple, mm. and where he, in front of you know eighty thousand uh, fans uh, in this audience, um, uh, said, "My name is Tim Cook. I'm CEO of one of the largest companies in the world, and I'm a proud gay American." Wow. And uh, to cheers, and this was in Salt Lake City, uh, in support of LGBT youth, uh, also by, with supporting the Trevor Project and getting those numbers and resources out to as many people as possible, even where they may not have the, that private connection. So working together with um, community-based organizations in areas there where they may not readily hear about it is important. Great. Another question? Hi, uh, thanks for coming and speaking with us today. It's a real pleasure to hear your stories. My question gets into something Michelle alluded to earlier in her daily television comment, her question, which is as these traditional technologies um, disappear, airwaves, phone lines, things like that, it seems like um, universal access needs to kind of be a broadband question. And that is having access to broadband for everybody in, in their homes. Um, you know, when the TV stops working, when the phone no longer uh, works with the dial, <laughs> how are these people going to get their information? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, and that's something that the FCC has been looking at for a number of years, universal access to broadband. I mean, broadband is the new form of connectivity. Um, uh, many companies now, uh, both the traditional telco companies and other companies also, are looking at, um, uh, at deploying broadband. Uh, in fact, now, uh, in most instances, uh, if you have new construction any, mo in most parts of the state, you're going to get fiber instead of the traditional copper line now and it's an understanding of broadband now that works if you live in urban areas uh, some of the challenges are in the more rural areas of the state and you probably heard about 5g that's coming uh, the 5g capability really allows for um, greater speeds over the wireless network so you're gonna have you're gonna have in many instances the wireless network being as fast if not faster than the wireline fiber network and that's a real that's a real that's really important for the rural areas which it's, it's much easier to put a tower up than it is to run fiber between homes that might be spaced uh, significantly far apart but I, I agree with you uh, five um, uh, broadband is going to be the mode of connectivity 
whether it's wireless or wireline. Mm. Hi, um, thanks so much for that really inspiring story. I have kind of a personal question about leadership for you. Um, it seems to me that a lot of leaders from underrepresented backgrounds get put in a position where they have to overextend themselves on, on multiple fronts and not just be a leader, not just be a spokesperson for the company, but also take on either the emotional burden or uh, just overextending and in, in being invited to diversity and inclusion events constantly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. And correct me if I'm wrong, if that is, is a tension at all for you. But I'm curious how you deal with that and whether you feel it's a burden or if it's something that um, you feel is a duty or how you just deal with the, um, the emotional uh, aspects of that and how we as maybe forthcoming leaders can expect to handle that kind of thing? That's a great question. Wow. You know, um, you know, I, I, you know, I think I, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to, how to respond to it. It's, it's, um, it, I, I see it as a duty obligation but it's almost something that, in many instances, you can do without great intentionality. I mean, because one thing, you know, I'll just give you an example. Uh, I'm, I'm often invited to speak at um, LGBT, you know, events or attend or support LGBT causes. I'm also um, invited to speak um, uh, significantly in the African-American community. I make, um, uh, I don't change the resume depending on the audience. And so my, my African-American um, uh, community um, uh, organizations know that I'm also LGBT. And I, my husband is there or introduced or was on my resume and my introduction. And I think without having to do anything differently, I'm making a difference because of just, just being my authentic self and not changing who I am and not, and not leaving certain parts of who I am out depending on the audience. So you actually make a difference simply by just being your authentic self and just showing up fully to wherever you are and not, and not altering it. When my boss told me that, do you want to be the gay president? I, I am the gay president, you know? And, and so you may not, if you don't see my family, you may not know that, but if you know my story, and you really care about knowing my story, you, you know that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, uh, just by being your authentic self and showing up fully, you do that. Uh, but I do think that we, um, we do have an obligation also. Uh, I believe in this concept called windows and mirrors that it's important for people to see themselves reflected by looking in the mirror, but it's also important for people to be able to look through a window and see people differently from them who have achieved as well. Great. Oh, beautiful. Uh, thank you for this beautiful testimony and, and living out uh, loud those, those values of authenticity. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering, and I'm very excited to see that more and more leaders are willing to be out come out and, and be out about their uh, political views as well. Uh, and it's a fine line. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the role of the private sector as we continue to see this rise of, uh, I'm, I'm very worried about the religious exemption pieces, for example, uh, and the relentless attacks against foster families and, and, and children in foster uh, care, and, uh, and really the prohibition against LGBTQ adoption and fostering. So how do you see the role the private sector in, in having this courage and leveraging your power across the country and globally to move uh, public policy. Yeah, and that you know that's that's one of the challenging pieces as an executive of a of a of a, of a uh, publicly traded corporation. And you know our obligation is to our shareholders, and um, but um, you know increasingly you're seeing this real intersection between social justice and. Um, you know, and and what are your values as a corporate entity? Um, if you if you truly care about your customers and your community, do you take a stand? And if you take a stand, who's going to be upset? You know, and because you're kind of out there, you're not a political entity. You're kind of out there to provide services for everyone. But I think that, I think what has happened, particularly over the last few years, but I would say it's been an evolution over the last decade, particularly with the, where these social issues have bubbled up. 
for AT&T and I know for many other companies and the tech sector has been very, um, very vocal and supportive. And so we, we do live in a very special area, but we also live in somewhat of a bubble as well. Uh, but I, I think companies can and should and must take positions on these social issues if they truly care and have policies that are internal. I mean, we have to let, we have to express ourselves uh, when we see that um, our employees especially are under attack. Uh, we have an obligation to protect them, to make them feel safe, uh, to give them equal rights. Uh, and, and, a lot of, and a lot of the social activism from corporations really come from within that desire to make our employees feel comfortable, protected, and, and empowered. And, um, you know, we, and you know, we have, you know, taken positions, particularly over the last several years, about this religious freedom. And we understand this is something that continues to, to bubble up, uh, but it really, it really um, questions and challenges a company's ability to kind of live and celebrate itself and create its own rules by, you know, uh, and so I think that um, uh, companies have an obligation to continue and to not be quiet and silent uh, when their own values are under attack as well. Great. Donna. Uh, Ken, could you address this thing that bothers me as a fundraiser? I appreciate corporate support. I mean, we're delighted when, when somebody says yes, and we maybe they say yes before we've been asked, as many times AT&T has done. But there are, is a group that says, you know, we don't need that corporate connection. We don't, I'm, I'm offended by the fact that they have uh, two blocks of people walking in the parade. It takes too much time. What do you say to those people, especially in our LGBT community, that say, Let's just have a smaller parade. We don't need that money. It doesn't need to be that big. I don't want to be in bed with this bank or in bed with this corporate entity. How do you address that, or do you? Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting because, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll address it two ways, uh, Donna. Thank you for the question. Um, you know, oftentimes in our community, there's a, um, a reaction to anything that's corporate. Uh, you know, if it has incorporation behind it, then it must be bad. Um, you know, I, I, you know, particularly in our, in our community, in, our, uh, in the Bay Area, you have companies, you have employ employers who are truly committed to wanting to make a difference in their communities, not only in their communities, but also with their employees. To deny a company an opportunity to march into the parade is to deny its employees an opportunity to show their pride, their pride for being LGBTQ and their pride for being an employee of whatever company. And that's our opportunity to celebrate ourselves. And I think it would be a real lost opportunity. I mean, we're not, you know, we're hope we're hoping we're not just doing it to to write a check to the parade foundation, but to really give an opportunity to celebrate our employees, those employees to celebrate their their employment, and for us to celebrate, we are happy that you are here with us. <laughs> Hi, um, you spoke briefly about being a gay dad. And that's a somewhat unique experience as a gay male. Um, so um, as a fellow gay dad, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about both the opportunities and the challenges that that can present. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. Why, we could do a show on yeah. that. Show. <laughs> I mean, you, have, you, that. you have to invite me back for day dads. Oh, we, oh gay trust dads. me. I, that's, I will. Oh, that's, I will. Because, you know, it is, it, okay, first of all, I could say it, it, is, it, is, um, uh, it is magical. You know, being a being a a, a dad is, is magical, and I and I um, I can I, I wish more um, um, men will have would would have that opportunity. Um, it's been transformative, uh, but it's also been the most challenging job I've ever had. I can do the president of AT and T in my sleep. Being a dad is challenging. I now have preteens, and you know what that's like. Um, so, so it, that, that part has been, it, it's been really rewarding, uh, but it does come with challenges. You, I mean, I realized early on that, um, that um, most literature, it's all about the connection between moms and moms and dads. And, um, and so you have to, you have to, you have to reconcile that and kind of talk about what that means. I remember when I, um, you know, we don't use the word mom much in our house. We have dad, daddy and papa. 
And I remember when our kids went to preschool, uh, they came back, my daughter especially, uh, you know, mommy me. And mommy, you know, schools are very mom-centric places for pick up and drop off and volunteering and things like that. And so my daughter thought that mommy meant pick her up. I mean, give her a hug. <laughs> and, and it was because when the kids would, when the moms would come to pick her up, pick their kids up, they'd get the hug. And so she would say, mommy me, you know, and so you pick me up and give me a hug. And so you, you go through that process. But the other thing is, is that, is that you realize that uh, there's a lot of parenting networking that goes on between moms and about the sharing of, ad- of advice and, and what works, what doesn't, and all these kinds of things that I really have to kind of struggle to kind of insert myself into that, into that group, you, you know, well, you know, well um, and so that's, uh, that's been, that's been a challenge. Um, and then, you know, what society, you know, if you, if you are a guy with a, with a six month old getting on a plane by yourself with your six month old, it is like, you know, either you are super dad and everybody's so helpful and they're applauding <laughs> you because you're doing this great thing. And then you realize, oh my God, you know, women do this every day without the applause <laughs> and, and we, we get this applause or you get this Oh my God! You know they let you out with that baby, you know, and and uh, so you you get those you get those looks as well. Uh, so I, I do think that um, it is a it is a learning experience. It is a rewarding experience, um, and um, it is a journey. Uh, and uh, but I'm it's a journey that I'm glad I'm on. Wow. Uh, we've got question. time for one more question, and then and then I, I have the last question. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> My name is Dr. Hassan Z. I am a medical doctor and a filmmaker, and I was invited by Michelle to come here today. So I was quite inspired uh, by your talk and your story. And uh, I just want to give a suggestion. Um, you are in a position at AT&T where you can make a difference in the lives of uh, LGBT community. And uh, you, you talk about being authentic and being yourself. But if you go into these southern small towns, people might just, I mean, I mean I'm talking about myself. I might go back home, Pakistan, I might get killed mm. just being authentic and being myself. So um, my suggestion would be, what can AT&T do and you as, you know, on such position, uh, maybe in the logo, I think we need to educate people. And in the logo, it can say, we embrace all genders. Or something bigger than just you know giving money here and there and a little bit here and there. I think that in this position, you might be able to do something a little bigger. And uh, that's just a suggestion. But what would you say about it, though? No, sure, sure. I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I certainly appreciate that. I, mean, I do think that um, um, I think that we can make a difference. Um, I think I think we can do actually more tangible things than putting a, you know putting words in a logo. I think what we can do is that is that we employ people in every state, in every state of America, uh, we employ individuals, and our rules are not regional rules. Our values are not regional values. Our protections are not regional protections. League, our LGBT employee resource group, is as, um, uh, is as popular and in existence in Mobile, Alabama, as it is in San Francisco. In fact, it's needed more in Mobile, Al- Alabama. And those employees know, you know, we can't change the world, but we can change the world with, with inside the boundaries that we have. You can come to work. You can be promoted. You, without regard to LGBT, your LGBT, um, 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 uh, in, in fact, in many instances, uh, because of, I mean, because we want to celebrate your difference. And in fact, that could be a value add that you're bringing to the table. Um, and so that is, that can, you, can, you can be your whole self. You know, I can't change what, what you might be doing in the community uh, or your family situation, but you can come to uh, the company and you'll have uh, a company that values and celebrates you. And I think that, knowing that brand stands for that and our engagement in the community and being a safe place to work and promoting and, and, and celebrating can, can help change because other companies are doing the same thing and that starts the snowball. 
I want to, Ken, I get the last question. I want to thank you so much for being here. I mean, it really means a lot to myself and I'm I'm sure everyone here um, and those tuning in through Commonwealth Club and Progressive Voices Network. Uh, My last question really touches on it. First of all, I want to validate, you know, the fact that what you're doing at AT AT&T is just so incredible. As the company merges with Time Warner, it becomes one of the most powerful, uh, biggest global media uh, internet broadband companies there is going to be out there. I think AT&T is very lucky to have an individual like you who can start to, to shape this and make it so that it's, it's, it balances. So that's the key word, the balance. Um, as the company continues to have LGBTQ policies and hire LGBTQ people, one of the things I find when talking to my corporate friends who work for a lot of these large companies is that I'm just going to use Brad as an example. So I apologize if there is a Brad here, (laughs) but Brad will be Brad outside of work. And then there's Brad, you know, at work. And even though Brad can be out at work, the Brad that is actually not working is very different. So for example, I would imagine that you may not want to display, you know, a photo of you and your husband at Folsom street fair, uh, on, on your, on your desk (laughs) at work. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's that, that element. And then there's, you know, kind of something similar as to some of these companies are going through in which down to the service, the customer service that turns away an LGBTQ person as Renata had brought up with religious uh, freedom. And then that employee of that company is part of a company that has gotten a hundred percent on HRC, the HRC index, or, you know, has marched in the pride parade for over 25 years, or has given a million dollars to the Trevor project, that there becomes a disconnect. I think that we need more leadership. We need more gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer people in leadership like yourself who can then be authentic and create and shape the policies that goes from just a social, you know, construction of being LGBTQ inclusive, but to empower that it also is safe for LGBTQ people to be a part of the corporate culture. I know that was a really long last question, but I think that how you can respond to it will give hope to not just the community, but also if you're employed by a big corporation and if you're thinking about how to implement diversity and absolute inclusion at these corporations, that's what I'm looking for is the, the, the words of hope beyond, you know, just be yourself. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's a great question, Michelle. And, and, and I, you know, I, I've, 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 I think a constant reframe has, uh, of mine has been authenticity, and uh, and I know that it's not always easy, um, because it wasn't easy for me when I was growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, nor when I first arrived in Atlanta, Georgia. It's gotten easier over o- over time. Uh, in part, you know, the, the Bay Area certainly was a, kind of unleashed me in a in a way that had not been before, but but I think. Time, with the change of time, and I think being in a position where you're able to see and be seen being authentic, it really starts to, starts to make, a, make a difference. You know, if, if, if I'm being celebrated internally and externally for the kinds of work that I'm doing, the exposure that I'm getting, it is making other uh, junior employees um, uh, giving them the confidence to to come come out, to be out, to live out. We recently celebrated one of the scientists, one of our top scientists um, at um, at AT and T, um, has um, uh, transitioned from male to female, and uh, she is uh, one of our top scientists. In fact, uh, created a um, a um, uh, a drone that allows for cellular coverage to be flown over fire so that first responders can communicate with, e- with each other while, uh, well, because of, you know, uh, the, the towers go down during the fire, they, have the, they need this kind of connectivity. We, she gets celebrated in a very big way. Uh, and that starts to knock down these walls. And it starts to make people, remember I talked about windows and mirrors, that people need to see themselves reflected and people need to see through the mirror to see people differently than them. 
than themselves achieving at very significant levels. Mm. That creates this comfort. That creates the opportunity. That creates the 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 desire to want to. I mean, to want to be like them. I mean, if I if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know. And so part of being living authentically, working authentically, loving authentically is that you can then represent yourselves to the greater community. Here I am, and here and you know, like me, you know, love me or not, I, this is who I am, and 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 you know that you've accomplished maybe not in, st- in spite of, but because of. Love it. Let's give a round of applause, a great round of applause for our guest, Ken McNeely. Thank you. Ken. Thank you. I so enjoy this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you to uh, our major sponsor, Pacific Fertility Center, and of course, Ceremony Ford for providing lunch. The Michelle Miao Show airs on Progressive Voices Network Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, Sunday on KBCW's San Francisco Bay Area, 712, uh, Channel 44 on the standard tube with the dial, <laughs> or the antenna, um, however you want to do it. And, uh, and, and thank you. We're here every Thursday at the Commonwealth Club. Thanks to the Commonwealth Club for making this happen, um, and where we invite LGBTQ thought leaders into the conversation to make change. So make change today. Make it happen. Thank you. Yeah.